show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Newberg. Dr. Newberg is Professor and Director of Research Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University and Hospital. He's the author of multiple books, and the one he most recommends for faith leaders is called Words Can Change Your Brain, 12 Conversation Strategies to Build Trust, Resolve Conflict, and Increase Intimacy. Dr. Newberg is technically a neurologist, but he's on the cutting edge of a brand new field of research called neurotheology, and it's the study of how the brain affects religious belief and how the religious practices affect the brain. This was a fascinating episode diving into brain health and religious practices, and I began by simply asking Dr. Newberg if he could explain for us what neurotheology is. Uh, Simply put, neurotheology is the field of scholarship that looks to understand the relationship or the link between uh, the religious and spiritual side of ourselves and the human brain. to expand on that, uh, you know, for me, for neurotheology to work as a as a term, um, I like to define the neuro side very broadly, uh, as well as the theology side broadly. So the neuro side uh, not only includes neuroscience and neuroimaging, but includes the rest of the, the medical world, looking at physiological changes in the in the body and the brain. Uh, it includes um, psychology, anthropology, and so forth. Uh, all of these things can go into sort of how we understand that biological piece of ourselves. Uh, and then on the other side, the theology, of course, is is actually a, an actual discipline. But we're really talking also not only about theology proper, but about uh, religious studies, comparative religions, uh, religious and spiritual beliefs, practices, experiences, uh, as well as the social and cultural aspects of it. So uh, that also has to be defined very, very broadly, I think, for, for the term to work. And and the, the last thing that I always like to stress about neurotheology is that for me, um, neurotheology is a true kind of two-way street. It's not just science looking at religion and theology. It's not religion looking at science, but it's the two of them looking at each other and seeing how they can intersect, uh, how each of them may inform the other uh, about who we are ultimately as human beings and how do we bring something, bring all of this together uh, in, a, in a very multidisciplinary way that may help us get at um, some of the, the fundamental questions of, of humanity about you know, who we are, the nature of reality, uh, why we're here, uh, all those big questions that uh, I know I've been thinking about for a long time and uh, I'm, I suppose probably goes back a few thousand years as well. So. Yeah, I think so. And actually, I wanted to ask you about that, because when you look at the training you received, you began in internal medicine. If I recall, you did a stint in nuclear medicine, radiology, also psychiatry. Um, What is it that got you into neurology and then ultimately combining theology with neurology? That's such a fascinating journey. Well, you know, it actually goes back to when I was a child. I mean, I think I was always very intrigued by religious and spiritual belief systems. Um, I, I think, I, you know, the, the thing that always stuck out in my own mind was the idea of, you know, well, how, how are people, all, we're all looking at the same world. I mean, why do we have different religions? I mean, what, why is, are we having different uh, perspectives on things? And uh, I started to look at this from the brain perspective. I thought, well, it's our brain that's helping us to, to do all of this and to look at the world and make some sense out of it. So let's start with that. But as I, as I grew up and as I went through my own, uh, training in, in college and ultimately in a medical school, um, I kept feeling that, that while science was great and, and, all, and did a, a lot to help us explain the, the physical world, there were certain aspects that were uh, that it wasn't able to get to, things about consciousness and, and our perspective on reality and our spiritual uh, beliefs and philosophical ideas, metaphysical ideas. Um, so I started to look into philosophy and religion and theology and so forth um, and and expanded my training in those areas. And then uh, so all of this stuff was kind of swirling around, including my own thought processes on the topics. And uh, and then finally, when I was in um, medical school and started to get my training in neuroimaging, uh, as we I also was doing that at the same time as um, another colleague of mine, my mentor, Gene DeQuilly, and I were discussing about the brain-related processes associated with practices like meditation and prayer and mystical experiences. Um, finally, a, kind of a light bulb went off in my head and said, well, wait, you know, why if we're doing brain scans of 
Alzheimer's and depression, why can't we do brain scans of religion and spirituality? And then that was really what uh, launched the ability to do this kind of work and, and uh, really to expand the whole field of neurotheology in a way that we, we really hadn't been able to do before. Yeah, I've seen a TED Talk where you actually show the brain scans of people before and after having religious practices. Uh, could you explain uh, what you do there and what you're showing? Yeah, so uh, we make use of a variety of different brain study, uh, brain imaging techniques. Um, probably the two most common ones that I have been involved with, one of them is called SPECT imaging, which stands for Single Photon Emission Computed Tomography. Uh, the other is probably a little bit more commonly known called uh, Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging or fMRI. Uh, a lot of my work has been done with the SPECT imaging, and um, and part of why we've used that, it's a it's a very elegant technique that looks at, at brain function. That's always what we're trying to, to get at. And part of why it works particularly well in the context of religious and spiritual practices is that uh, the way it works is we start out by um, putting a little IV catheter, a little intravenous catheter into somebody's arm long before they're doing their practice. And then when they're in the midst of their prayer practice or whatever it is that they're doing, we inject them with a small amount of a radioactive tracer that follows some aspect of the brain's function. And the reason that this works so well is that you don't have to actually be in the scanner when you're doing the practice, which is very helpful for religious and spiritual practices where people, you know, could be standing, moving, uh, moving their arms, um, moving, you know, swaying back and forth with their body, uh, saying certain things. So we get them uh, to do the practice. We get them into the, you know, they get into the state, their spiritual state, and then at that sort of peak experience, we inject them, we infuse them with this material, we let them finish their practice, and then we put them into the scanner. But the scanner tells us what they were doing at the moment of the injection, at the moment of their kind of peak spiritual state. So it gives us an opportunity to study practices like meditation, prayer, we've studied uh, speaking in tongues, different types of trance states. And then we can look at the areas of the brain that have turned on or turned off um, as the result of those practices and, and look at the effects not only during the practice, but also long-term effects, which, uh, you know, more and more from a health-related perspective are very important in terms of, you know, do these practices change a person's uh, perspective on who they are as a person, on their relationships? Does it reduce uh, things like anxiety, depression? Uh, and if so, what are the brain mechanisms involved in that process? Yeah, so as I was studying your work, it, if I understood right, I think you were making the case that um, a habitual uh, a habitual practice or an ongoing long-term habit is good for brain health, and you can actually track that through your scans. Well, that's correct. Um, you know, we've, we've done several longitudinal studies to look at the effects of these practices on the brain over time. Uh, one, of our, one of the first studies that we did in this regard uh, was actually the very first longitudinal study. Uh, of a meditation practice. And we were looking at it in older individuals who had had some memory problems and found that, um, you know, not only did it help improve memory, it also helped to reduce anxiety, reduce depressive symptoms, and it changed the way their brain worked. So we have sort of a pre and a post, and we were able to show that their frontal lobes, which actually help with concentration, but also help to regulate our emotional responses and help to protect us from anxiety and depression, um, the frontal lobes became more active, not only when they were doing the practice, but even afterwards. So, um, you know, one of the analogies I guess I always like to use is the idea of, of, of exercise. Um, you know, if you're going to uh, be, be a good tennis player, uh, you've got to play tennis a lot and you're going to do a lot of, of, of drills that improve the way you play tennis. Now, um, to a certain extent, that's true with the brain. If you want to get good at doing crossword puzzles, you do a lot of crossword puzzles. But with, with sports as well, with, with exercise as well, there are certain things that are good no matter what you're planning on doing. So while, you know, if you were trying to be a good basketball player, you wouldn't play tennis, you play basketball. But whether you want to be a basketball player or a tennis player, uh, you might run or you might lift weights or you might stretch or something like that. And practices like meditation and prayer seem to be more of that genre where they seem to have a more global effect that seem to enhance the ability of a person's brain to function in whatever specific domains that person may be, be looking for. So it seems like it's sort of, you know, overall it helps with 
um, with memory processes. It helps with reducing anxiety, with reducing stress, reducing depression. And these are kind of global effects that then, you know, depending on what you are doing in your life, whatever your job is, um, whatever your family or, or relationship issues are, then you can, you know, work on those various issues um, more specifically. So it's wonderful and you know, by itself, but it's also even better when you're combining it with more specific targeted practices that you might do to try to enhance the brain's health uh, with a very specific idea in mind in terms of what your what your goals are. Yeah, I think there's a lot of encouragement there for a lot of people because if if I'm understanding you right, you're saying that not only does the practice help in the moment, but the continual habit of the practice very much helps long term. Yes, and uh, you know part of the early work that was done looking at that actually looked at brain volumes, the sort of the overall structure of the brain. And found, for example, that long-term meditators were actually uh, actually had thicker frontal lobes than people who were non-meditators, and that was an interesting finding. Um, but it was a bit of a chicken and the egg question, which is, you know, did the frontal lobes become thicker because they had been doing the practice, uh, or were they built that way? And that's why a practice like meditation or prayer was particularly good for them. Uh, and that's why we launched some of our longitudinal studies where we were able to see that. Um, while there may be certain predisposing abilities that each person has, uh, that doing these practices literally does change the brain and change the brain over time. So as you said, I mean, the, the, the positive side is that for anyone who wants to try to alter the way their, their brain is working, help to maintain their brain health over a long period of time, doing these kinds of practices seems to be beneficial. And, uh, but there is a big caveat there too, which is that there, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of different kinds of approaches and practices, and not every one works for every person. Uh, on the other hand, every practice has generally shown to be beneficial to, to people in a, in a general kind of way. So when people are thinking about doing these practices, if they find one and they try it and it doesn't work that well for them, um, that doesn't mean that they'll never find a practice that works well for them. They just have to find the right one that, that happens to be something that they can do and that they enjoy and that they can engage fully. Uh, in fact, that, that's been another um, uh, sort of take-home message of some of our research, which is that the more you can actually engage it, the more a particular practice is consistent with the, who you are and what you believe, then the, the more profound the effects can be. I mean, it's not a surprise, but uh, the bottom line is, is that you know, if, you're, if you're just doing a meditation practice, but you don't really like it that much or you don't care about it that much, it probably isn't going to do that much for you. And, um, and if you're doing some kind of prayer practice, that's really, you know, you love doing the rosary and, and that's a wonderful practice for you. And it's been great since you were a child, then that's a great practice to continue to do because it's probably going to have a much more profound effect than suddenly starting to do, you know, mindfulness meditation that you're not really that familiar with. I, I believe you've uh, written about God circuits where obviously I'm a layman and most of our listeners are, uh, you know, lay people, but you talk about how different areas of the brain reveal to you your, uh, I'm not going to word it well, but like your understanding of God. So the amygdala, there tends to be, if I remember what you wrote, um, more of an angry or judgmental God, but then you had the the frontal lobe and you had the, uh, the limbic system. Anyway, I should just stop talking and let you answer. But uh, tell us about the God circuits and what that teaches us. Well, when we look at, uh, you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, um, you know, is there one God part of the brain, for example? And um, I think, you know, in general, what the research shows is that, no, there isn't just one part of the brain that turns on, you know, when somebody walks into a church, for example. Uh, and in fact, when you think about religious and spiritual ideas and beliefs and experiences, they are very rich. They are very diverse. They include a variety of cognitive, emotional, experiential elements to them. So it makes sense that there are lots of different parts of the brain that would be part of the religious or spiritual circuits, the God circuit, as you're putting it. Um, and so it does depend a lot on what a person, how a person actually engages their religious and spiritual ideas and beliefs. If somebody looks at God as a universal being that causes the universe to occur, this is a more cognitive process. And so you're going to be talking about areas of the brain, uh, like the temporal lobe, which is along the side of our brain that helps us with abstract ideas and, and the feelings of a sense of causality in the world. Uh, on the other hand, if you uh, think of God as a very loving and compassionate God, then you are going to activate some of the positive emotional centers of the brain, um, parts of the rewards uh, areas of the brain 
that are involved, for example, with uh, even neurotransmitters like dopamine. And, uh, and as you were alluding to um, in the question about, you know, the negative views about God, if you look at God as being very punishing or very angry, um, then you're going to activate some of the, the negative emotional areas of the brain and it can include things like the, the amygdala, which is one of the areas of our limbic system that's involved in a very strong emotional responses. That, but, but interestingly, a lot of areas of our brain, like the amygdala, they can light up in fear and negative emotions as well as in very positive emotions. So, um, so it is a whole network of different structures that interrelate to each other. And, uh, and part of what we've noticed in general is that our emotional responses are kind of balanced by our frontal lobe uh, areas of the brain so that when we get very emotional, our frontal lobes tend to shut down. And that's why, you know, people say things that they don't mean when they get into a big fight. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, if somebody, you know, cuts us off on the freeway and uh, we get really angry, then it's our frontal lobes that say, okay, let's relax. Let's kind of, you know, not, not worry about this. You got to get to, you got to get to work. So, so let's just keep going. And that helps to settle down the emotional responses. And so, uh, and, and part of what we also know is that the more we use any area of the brain, uh, the more those areas become more prominently affected in the brain, the more they're interconnected with other areas. So if we are focused on more love and compassion and forgiveness, then that becomes the way, and those become the ways in which we believe and also the ways in which we behave. Uh, on the other hand, if we focus on hatred, anger, exclusivity, and so forth, um, then those are the ways in which we begin to believe and behave. And so uh, it is, I think, you know, fundamentally important for all of us to, to keep working towards finding those more compassionate avenues and uh, areas where we can try to be more positive, more helpful, not only within ourselves, but with other individuals. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, especially when you look around what's going on in the world today, uh, we seem to be uh, you know, a lot of people are activating those negative areas of the brain, and we need to find ways of very purposefully bringing in the more positive side so that we can try to find ways of being more compassionate, forgiving, more open, and uh, and hopefully find more effective ways of interacting with everybody uh, out there in the, in the universe. Yeah, it's it's fascinating you bring that up because I've heard you say before that we ought to be so careful uh, what we feed. Mm -hmm, right. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, the uh, you're, you're referring to a, an old story, I guess it has several different permutations about like a rabbinical story. Yeah. About yeah. This, I think the yeah. version we had was, um, I guess supposed to be more from like an American Indian type of uh, story okay. where, uh, you know, the child is, gets upset because, uh, one of his, uh, uh, one of his classmates or, or friends or whatever, you know, stole something from him and he gets very angry and, uh, goes to his, uh, his elder and, um, says, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I'm really upset. Uh, on the other hand, I feel like I should try to forgive him. And, um, and his grandfather basically says to him, well, look, you know, inside all of us are these two wolves. One is the wolf, which is the, the selfish and angry uh, kind of wolf and always, you know, really looking out for you and, um, uh, and, and gets, you know, very angry and very exclusive about things. The other is the wolf that's very compassionate, understanding, uh, open to other people and forgiving. And, um, he, you know, he thinks about that for a little bit. He says, you know, well, these two wolves are always fighting each other inside of me, which is the wolf that, that will win. And he says, it's the wolf that you feed. And that is very consistent with what we know about the brain, that the more you feed those positive circuits, the more you feed, uh, and, and focus on actions, beliefs, and behaviors that are, uh, more positive and compassionate, those will be the neural connections that will will really take hold in the brain. And, and the opposite is true as well. So this is what we, uh, you know, the, that's to me one of the things that I find most disturbing about a lot of the things that have been going on in, you know, uh, in, in the United States and, and really around the world where you have so much anger that gets uh, raised up. And in many ways, you know, we're all sort of guilty of that. We tend to to go to sources and go to things that support our ideas and support our beliefs and in many ways support the anger and uh, vitriol that we have against other groups and, uh, and trying to find ways of being more compassionate and understanding uh, to me is actually part of what comes out of neurotheology. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, one, again, one of, to me, one of the real take home messages out of neurotheology is the realization that, uh, that we all have a brain that is looking at it, essentially an infinite world, there's, you know, we, we get access to about 0.000001% of the information out there. And uh, one, you know, it's amazing that we come up with any ideas at all that, that seem to make some sense. 
But two, I think we need to be a little bit more um, more relaxed about the fact that somebody else is probably going to come to other conclusions than we do and, and be aware of that and, and be understanding of that because they have a whole different set of genetics and environments and experiences and, uh, you know, different brain mechanisms uh, that each person brings to the table. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it should be uh, absolutely essential that we all come up with different perspectives on what the world is instead of having just one that everybody can agree on. Well, and yeah, I guess in this culture of outrage, <laughs> you're saying outrage is bad for the brain and one good reason to forgive people isn't just to so much let them off the hook as it's good for your own well-being if you forgive someone. Exactly. And, you know, the, the more you uh, engage you know, hateful, angry behaviors, um, the more your brain becomes hateful and angry and, and becomes anxious, becomes depressed and so forth. And so, yes, I mean, you know, uh, as you said, I mean, trying to find ways of, 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 you know, again, it's not just for the benefit of the other individual, but it's for the benefit of you as for you, that um, that you find ways of of uh, going down a path that can uh, support more compassion, love, uh, understanding in your own brain, because you also bring that love, compassion, understanding to yourself. I mean, none of us are perfect; all of us make mistakes, and we can either get angry at ourselves and and frustrated and and upset, or we can say, okay, you know, we we're human; we made a mistake, um, and uh, you know, our brain made a mistake, and now we got to move on to the next. Uh, the next thing and, and hope that we do a little bit better the next time. We keep striving for being something a little bit better the next time instead of overly worrying about what we where we failed before. And I think that that can be a very positive way of looking at things. I suppose there must be two different opinions with neurotheology. There must be a side that says it's all ultimately in the brain and a spiritual life uh, is for the benefit of uh, adaptation or evolutionary journey. And there must be another, I would imagine, stream that says there really is an external reality of a God or a supreme being. Have you? Do you land one way or another yourself? Uh, I mean, for me personally, uh, I, I do take a very middle of the road approach. Um, while I recognize that there are both ways of thinking about things, and while I also realize that at some point uh, we may be able to design the perfect study or or the perfect approach that would help us to to prove one side or the other, um, uh, I also recognize that at the moment we are far from that, and so. Uh, you know, we need to utilize all the resources that we have, utilize all of our technologies, all of our, uh, all of the wisdom and understanding that comes from the ancient traditions uh, and philosophies and theologies and so forth uh, to, to really bring to bear on, on the nature of these questions. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I try to encourage people that while each, each of us has maybe their own beliefs about where, where things really are, um, again, that we recognize that each of us has a brain that has its own experiences and has looked at the world in different ways. And so it isn't surprising that some people come away with a belief that, um, that, you know, everything is just material and, and we're just biological creatures and uh, spiritual feelings are just that feelings uh, that arise out of the brain. Uh, on the other hand, um, it also makes sense that people would come to the conclusion that there's there is something out there, and and of course this uh, would be the way our brain works in order to be able to interact with God or you know some ultimate consciousness or something like that. And uh, but I, I think you know again for for me for neurotheology as a as a field it has to take very seriously both those perspectives. Um, we can't just ignore one or reject one uh, out of hand uh, simply because we have uh, one particular. Uh, approach or bias or, or data point, uh, we really need to be careful and thinking it all the way through because they're, they're very complex issues. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, even, um, you know, I get asked a lot, uh, well, uh, you know, if somebody takes a, a drug like a psilocybin or some type of psychedelic uh, drug and it creates this experience. So isn't that just, you know, God in a pill? And I say, well, you know, from the Western medicine perspective, yes, you're given a drug and it causes this experience to happen. It is a physiological process um, that causes that experience. 
But there is another perspective to take. And, uh, you know, for shamanic cultures throughout history, um, taking these substances was not viewed as artificial, but I mean, they, they recognized that it caused a state to occur, but they, 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 uh, they identified that as uh, the window or the door into that spiritual yeah. realm. and Like um, a portal almost. What's that? As a portal, yes. Like a portal, yeah. And, uh, you know, the analogy that I always use, um, I, I guess the people who are listening to this can't see me, but, you know, I, I wear glasses. And uh, and so when I wake up in the morning, it's a very blurry world. But uh, I put my glasses on and the world is clear. Now, the world didn't change. Reality didn't change, per se, but my perception of it did. So who's to say that when you take a drug like psilocybin, that it isn't an artificial experience, but actually somehow gets the brain to be processing at a speed or a frequency or whatever that actually gets it in touch with that ultimate baseline level of the universe or some, you know, reality, some uh, uh, ultimate consciousness level of the universe. Um, you know, I mean, we don't know. And, and, but, you know, that's certainly another possibility. And so, again, you know, we have to be cautious about how quickly we reject one idea or another uh, until we really have information that we that we know, and uh, and that is part of you know the overall approach in neurotheology is has really been kind of a combination for me at least as my own combined sort of spiritual and and scientific approach to understanding the universe. Uh, you know whether we will ever get to the answer to those questions, I don't know. But um, uh, as I always like to tell people, if if I ever figure it out, I will certainly let everyone know. And, uh, hopefully, you know, maybe I, I think if we are going to figure it out, it's going to have to be this kind of multidisciplinary approach. I, I think it's going to be unlikely that just one side or the other is going to answer everything we need to know. But I, I'm open to all the possibilities. That to me is what, uh, you know, being a good scholar and a good scientist is all about. So the concern of this podcast is doing what we can to uh, bring relief to leaders that face a lot of pressure. Mm. These are typically organizational leaders. Most of our listeners would be faith leaders or parents. Um, I think it would be really helpful to hear from you how you see anxiety impact the brain and then just exploring what are two or three practices you find that really help reduce people's anxiety and pressure. Well, you know, anxiety and, and stress, which is, you know, they're very intimately related, um, uh, typically, these arise. Uh, prim- ultimately, they arise um, in the limbic system, in the emotional centers of the brain. And we talked a little while ago about the amygdalas being turned on when and, you know something very anxiety-provoking occurs, something very negative occurs. Um, interestingly, and and importantly, um, you know the the brain and the body are intimately interconnected. So the amygdala, uh, through what's called the hypothalamus, uh, connects to our autonomic nervous system that regulates our our body and our blood pressure, our heart rate and respiration and so forth. So that is part of why when you feel anxious, it's not just something that you feel up in your head, but you, you literally feel it throughout your body. Your heart starts to race, your, your blood pressure goes up. And so you feel the distress and the anxiety throughout your body uh, in addition to whatever you're actually thinking about in terms of the anxiety. Now, um, you know, part of what we also know, uh, as we also said a few moments ago, is that when these areas get you know, ratcheted up to a very high level, then they actually start to shut down some of the higher cognitive areas of the brain. It's a bit of a, of a fulcrum so that uh, the more your emotions go up, the more your cognitive processes go down and vice versa. And so um, when that happens, that is part of why, you know, as we get under stress, uh, we become less able to resolve problems rationally, logically. Uh, we get less likely to be able to think things through. And so uh, it really does become quite a challenge for people, especially when they're under a lot of stress. Um, and of course, stress uh, occurs and affects people in different ways. I mean, some people can deal with immense, you know, you get some of the great athletes like the Michael Jordans and the, you know, Roger Federer's of the world that, you know, love to to be in those um, stressful situations and they, they, they rise to another level by using that energy in a positive kind of way. And then there's other people who just, you know, completely uh, uh, collapse when that happens. So, um, you know, each of us uh, has our abilities to manage and handle stress in different ways. And so when it comes to the best ways of doing it, 
um, you know, part of the answer is that everybody has to kind of find their own pathway that works best, uh, ways that we, you know, know work for sort of the general population include practice, spiritually related practices, although they can be secularized as well. So they don't have to be done within any given religious framework. But uh, as we also said, um, you know, the more somebody believes in something, then sometimes that can be more effective. So I, you know, I think it's probably better for somebody to do a prayer practice that's part of their religious tradition than to do a secularized meditation practice that is not. Uh, on the other hand, if you're if you're not particularly religious, then doing a practice like mindfulness or going to a yoga pro- program uh, could be very effective, even though it has very little spiritual uh, components to it. Um, in terms of you know the, the the best specific practices, again, I mean there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different meditation-based practices. And from my read of the literature, almost all of them have been effective uh, in helping to reduce anxiety and depression in people. Uh, mindfulness certainly is one of the more uh, well-known ones and one of the more widely studied ones. Uh, we did a study of a different kind of meditation called Kirtan Kriya that is a more mantra-based practice. And so these are attention-focusing practices. And sometimes people like that, they can range from very simple, uh, you know, focusing on a candle or, or even just your own image that you create in your own mind. Uh, it could be focusing on a prayer. It could be focusing on the image of God, the image of Jesus uh, for Christians. Um, you know, so it just, it sort of depends on what works best for them. Uh, focusing on the breath is another very simple approach. And um, uh, so any of those practices can be helpful. We did a research study that showed that the rosary uh, helps to reduce anxiety. So, but again, you know, you wouldn't give, you wouldn't tell somebody who's Jewish to be doing the rosary. Um, you know, you want to tailor your, your, uh, approaches to the, your, your particular ideas and your beliefs. You want to make sure that it's consistent with your beliefs and your ideas about things. So, uh, you know, that to me is what a lot of the research and literature shows, but the more you can engage it. And specifically if people have spiritual traditions that they follow, uh, the, you know, there's been a lot of research which shows that they can help with coping and dealing with stressful situations, whether it's health-related stress or job or, or relationship stress. Uh, so all of them can be very, very effective. Uh, and of course, you know, even from a health-related, a more global health-related perspective, eating well, getting enough sleep, um, you know, making sure that you get exercise. I mean, these are all wonderful ways of helping the brain work effectively and help to reduce anxiety in people, help to reduce stress in people. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, try to find specific stress, you know, if you have a particular job with specific issues or problems, then the more you can kind of work through them and, and work through them with, within the, you know, your, uh, your workplace, within the people who you're interacting with, uh, more specifically, then that can help to reduce the overall level of stress as well. So there's always some very specific things to look at for any given stressor, uh, trying to deal with that and, and, and manage that as effectively as possible, as well as these more global approaches that have that spiritual context for people. One of my theories is that people who see themselves as a leader or people who are actually leading organizations, they're sometimes the last person in the room to know they need an intervention. <laughs> Whether it's because they're others focused or whether it's because they um, are unable to measure the impact of things on their own self. Uh, when I served as a chaplain, I served on the code team. You know, I, my job was to be with the family while the doctors were in the room. And one of the code team doctors would tell us that anytime somebody's heart stopped, first you take your own right. pulse <laughs> and then you go in. And that was fascinating to me as a chaplain because the only way I could be effective as a hospital chaplain would be to first pay attention to how I'm doing in order to be present to others. Right. With your experience and your your training, um, how does that resonate with you? Well, I, it, it very much so. Um, you know, we, uh, my colleague Mark Waldman and I uh, wrote a book called Words Can Change Your Brain, and it may be the most relevant for some of the listeners um, because we talk about language and the words that people use and how, um, how people utilize their own language, both internal and external, to interact with people and to hopefully promote less stress, less anxiety, less depression versus causing more. And, um, and, and part of what that's all about is to use a meditation-based approach that keeps people 
calm um, keeps people at a at a more um, uh, at a more relaxed, more present uh, state. And we think that that's important for the, the sort of the two reasons that you mentioned. I mean, one is to take your own pulse. You know, how are you feeling? How are you reacting to whatever is going on around them? And then the other is to make sure that when you express things outwardly, um, you're paying attention to what what everybody else is doing and thinking and feeling. So I think that you know being focused on both the external as well as the internal becomes very relevant. And that's what this compassionate communication approach is about, which is to get into to utilize a meditative state in the dialogue itself to help to reduce stress and help to reduce anxiety, to to listen effectively, to express yourself effectively. And it's based on a lot of scientific concepts. So, for example, um, you know what, what a lot of the research has shown is that the brain itself has what's called working memory, and we can only hold on to a very small amount of information, maybe four or five chunks of information at a time. Now, why is that relevant here? Well, so often when people get into an argument, what do they do? Well, they go on and on and on. They go on for 15 or 20 minutes about whatever they're upset about. The problem is, is that the person listening to you can only hold on to 30 seconds worth of that. So you're better off to talk for 30 seconds or a minute or something like that. Let the other person respond. Now you go back and continue with what you're doing or see how what, what that response was affects the way you're thinking about things. And so keeping things brief, uh, we talk about keeping a person's overall responses much more calm uh, by getting into a meditative state. You become less reactive. And then that way you can actually uh, really understand what you're thinking and responding to, but also pay attention to what the other person is thinking and responding to. And it's a very effective way for, for leaders. Mark Waldman has been teaching this at, uh, uh, at an MBA program uh, out in California. And uh, you know, we have found it to be very effective for helping to enhance uh, the overall well-being, not only of the individual, but of the group around them. And, uh, and there's a lot of evidence to support that by reducing stress and anxiety within a work group, um, that they are more productive, that they're happier, you know, less burnout and so forth. So these kinds of practices can be very, very effective. Um, and uh, one, one approach is, is our compassionate communication, but, but there are other uh, ideas as well. And, you know, again, one of the things that, uh, you know, just again, as a little aside, I mean, people sometimes think, oh, meditation, you know, I means I got to spend an hour and a half a day or something like that. And that's not really true. What the evidence shows is that even a very brief meditation, 30 seconds or a minute uh, can be very effective. And as you mentioned in, in your point about, um, you know, dealing with patients in a, in a code situation where somebody's heart is stopped, um, taking your own pulse, you know, if you're about to go into a very high pressured meeting, uh, spending 30 seconds or a minute before you do that, just focusing on your breath, um, uh, taking a couple of deep breaths, focusing on something important to you, reflecting on your family or whatever, you know, those are things that can get you into the meeting in a positive way, get the whole thing started off on the right foot instead of the wrong foot and, uh, and lead to a much more productive end result. It's really fascinating to hear you talk about all this as a neurologist, because um, most of my interest and in training is family systems theory. Mm. And it, it gets almost exactly to the same destination. Yeah. Uh, systems theory talks a lot about the emotional response versus the rational response mm. and um, how to de-escalate reactivity in a group. And that's exactly what you're talking about from a neurological perspective. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, again, there, there are a lot of different approaches and there are many, you know, sort of psychological, you know, psychotherapeutic approaches that people can take as well, which are very, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that. Um, which, which all work. Um, you know, it, it really is a matter of finding the, the right uh, approach that works best for a given individual. Uh, and that's why, you know, when it comes to practices like meditation and prayer and, and various spiritual practices that I've studied, uh, it kind of comes down to what works for that individual, what, what is consistent with their belief system, uh, what is consistent with, within their work system. I mean, maybe somebody's very religious, but they don't feel comfortable bringing it into the workplace but maybe they can find ways of bringing certain pieces of it in. You know, if they're a religious individual, maybe they're not going to start quoting the Bible in their, in their work meeting, but maybe they can talk about forgiveness uh, or maybe they can talk about uh, doing unto others. You know, some of the, some of the classic uh, ideas that uh, derive from religious ideas, maybe that can be worked into a work setting in a positive way that says, Hey, we all need to pay attention to what each other is thinking and feeling 
Uh, we all want to be held. Uh, we, we all want to have respect for each other. Um, and uh, and so, you know, again, uh, there are different ways of trying to approach those those problems by finding uh, mechanisms and, and programs that work best for each individual or each individual situation. You've already mentioned in this interview uh, the physiology of anxiety. I ask every guest, where in your body does anxiety start for you? Does it start for you in a in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut? I, I guess for me, it's it's probably the first two. Um, a little bit of a spinning mind, um, and and more something that I feel in my I feel my heart going. Um, I, I don't tend to get. Uh, the stomach upset, but as you said, I mean that that is certainly a very common thing, and, and it's because the, the heart and the and the gut are all uh, affected by the autonomic nervous system. So when your mind does start to go, uh, you start to feel it. But you know, one of the things that is important with regard to the question is, um, you know, that's part of what these practices help with, which is an awareness of what the heart is doing, uh, what your gut is doing. Is you know, are you feeling? A lot of times we we take our cues from our body, and so if we feel our heart racing, we say, "Oh, we we must be anxious," and then we get anxious. And so uh, there's, you know, it kind of goes both ways. It can go top down or or bottom up depending on the circumstances. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, some of my guests will simply say, "Well, it's all of them," but usually, well, yeah, yeah. usually it's because they've gone a bit too far before they notice it. But it does typically start somewhere. For me, it's always my mind. And when it gets to my heart, I'm pretty anxious by that point because I've usually tried to worry my way. Right. I, I'm not proud of this, but I, I still believe the lie that worrying more about it will make me less anxious. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Another source of anxiety in leaders is when in any given moment, we think we need something that we don't actually need. I'm not talking Maslow's hierarchy of need when your kid is on the street and they're in trouble and you're anxious. But in leadership situations... I think one of the sources of anxiety is when something happens and we're deprived of what we think we need. So in my case, I'm a chronic people pleaser. So if people, if I get the perception that I've done something that hurts someone or that somebody doesn't like me, I get anxious. It's not actually true. I don't actually need their approval. Are you able to name uh, something that you believe you need that you don't really need? I don't know if I've ever really thought about it in that context. Um, you know, I, I think the things that make me the most anxious, and I'm not sure if this is an answer to your question, is usually when when something goes wrong and um, and I feel that it, it was my responsibility that it went wrong. Um, so I'm not sure exactly if, if where that fits into the answer to your question, but I get most anxious when I feel that there was a problem that that I, I did something incorrect that, you know, led to a bad outcome. And it was it was you know, whether, whether I did it, I mean, certainly I'm sure it was not something that I would have done on purpose, but, uh, if some, if I feel somebody's blaming me for something, that's usually what makes me the most anxious. Uh, I think, uh, you know, if, if, if somebody else does something wrong, I'm usually, you know, uh, I'm very solution oriented. Uh, I try to be solution oriented with myself. If, if I feel like I've done something wrong, how do I make sure that I don't do it again in the future? And, uh, but, you know, I, I think, you know, and I don't know if that's, uh, you know, wanting that your, your superiors to think that you're perfect or whatever, but, um, uh, I think it's when I feel that, uh, somebody is blaming me for something. I think that's usually when I, I feel my most anxious. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. That's, I think that's a wonderful answer. Um, the other part of what we focus on, which you and I haven't gotten into today is how anxiety is contagious in a group. Uh, I spend half of the podcast on internal anxiety, but also about half of our episodes, we really focus on helping leaders notice when an entire group gets anxious. And the theory is that anxiety is contagious. You catch it like you catch a cold. And if a, if a leader can notice that, they can intervene. The, mm. other, the other theory would be that in, in any given group, the most anxious person has the most power mm. and, and less a leader can intervene. And of course, anxiety doesn't just mean worry. It might be that someone's angry and outburst, things you've already mentioned. Uh, right. Do you have a time where you could tell us where you've seen anxiety be contagious in a group? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, in, in a workplace environment, and I, I mean, I, I guess I have, a, you know, a variety of things that I'm kind of thinking about. Um, 
uh, is just that, uh, you know, it, it, it often has bothered me when people start, uh, to me, uh, what I guess is maybe similar to what you're saying is sort of the pointing finger syndrome and, you know, something something has gone wrong and then one person says, you know, well, it was that person's fault. They were late or they did this wrong or, you know, that should have been this. And then they say, yeah, but you're her supervisor and you should have done that. And then somebody says, yes, but if I don't know, you know, and, and then everybody kind of points fingers. Um, and I think that um, uh, to me, whenever I have seen that again, that's when I try to get to a solution. It's like, look, let's let's stop worrying about who did what and in what way. Let's look at what everybody did and find the mechanisms by which we can try to prevent this, you know, what, whatever happened happened. So let's try to find the mechanisms by which we can prevent that in the future. And, um, uh, you know, to bring this to a neurological perspective also, um, you know, one of the things that we also know about is that we have these mirror neurons within ourselves that do reflect what other people are doing and thinking. So if somebody uh, is getting anxious and is, has, you know, very, angry looking facial expressions and so forth, then that is mirrored in other people and they start to feel angry and upset. They realize that maybe this is a bigger problem than they realized or something like that. And so there is this way in which our brain resonates with other people. And conversely, again, as you sort of say, if there is an intervention where somebody comes in with a calm voice, with a, you know, with a smile, with a, we're going to work this out, uh, kind of attitude, then that can also stop that whole process in its tracks, and then they can resonate to the new way of thinking, and then work on you know work work its way up. So so I think it can go either way. Um, but uh, but yes, I mean definitely our brains do resonate with each other, and it is very easy to start you know everybody starting to co- complain about the same things, point fingers, whatever it is that they're doing, uh, in a way that that becomes very destructive, and then the the trick is. How does one go in there and and stop that process and try to convert it into something that's more constructive? Yeah, that's that's brilliant. I've I've never heard that about the mirror neurons. That's a fascinating um, evidence of this whole experience. Yeah, yeah. And you know, again, you know, if I smile, then people around me sort of smile. And so, you know, if you look at people with a a very compassionate, warm look, they will feel more relaxed. And on the other hand, if I have a scowl and and so forth, uh, and you know, I mean, it's funny, but I mean, to some degree, we see this in the playing out in the world, you know, for the people who, uh, you know, uh, take take Donald Trump, you know, for people who hate Donald Trump, you know, how do we always how is he always depicted with a mean scowl, because everybody wants you to realize that he's mean and angry. Uh, for the people who like him, they show when he's happy and feeling good and all that. And so, you know, it's it, that's part of how um, you know, we can build on emotions either way. We can take people one way or another, depending on the circumstances. And, and the more we focus on the one approach, being more happy, compassionate, forgiving, or the more we focus on being angry and, and negative, uh, the more that becomes the way each person's brain starts to resonate and, and respond. One of the ways to deescalate anxiety is to simply get in touch with the force of love. Um, so, Dr. Newberg, in your life, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Um, it's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> Believe it or not, I got it from Jerry Seinfeld, of all people. <laughs> I watch. Um, I, like, I like Jerry Seinfeld, so. Yeah, I watch comedians uh, in cars getting coffee, and one of his guests, Dana Carvey, asked it of him, and I thought it was a stunning question. That is a good question. Um, well, I, I guess, I mean, you know, on a, on a very practical level uh, or a very sort of material, you know, everyday world level, uh, it's certainly when I'm, I'm either with or thinking about my family. Um, and I do get derive a lot of love from from my my wife, my child, my parents and so forth. Um, the um, but the other uh, thing and, and I don't know if I would necessarily discuss this, describe this as love per se, um, but uh, in you know, I get into my own kind of philosophical meditations and feel very deeply connected uh, with the universe. And I don't know if love is exactly the word I would use, but it, it's it probably is sort of like that um, because there is this kind of calm, uh, this sense of connection, and uh, you know, on a very very uh, profound kind of level that. Um, that I think, you know, in many ways, it's it, it, it's sort of a more universalized love as opposed to the more specific love that I would get from from family. So, um, so I think that that's probably uh, uh, how I would look at it. Well, and actually, 
I, I guess the true answer to the question is, is that, you know, every day when I come home and uh, my dog Telly comes over to me, uh, that's about as much love as you have. <laughs> he, he's always pretty excited to see me. And, and uh, I know he, he's just absolutely enamored with me and uh, the <laughs> uh, you must have a better dog than I do. I'm pretty sure my dog <laughs> thinks I'm the household servant. Like I'm almost positive she's convinced I'm there to serve her. That whole man's best friend thing, I just feel shafted by my dog. Oh, yeah. No, he, he definitely he's, – he's crazy about me and, uh, and feelings mutual, and uh, it's always fun to come home. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. The last question similar. Could you give us just one or two activities and one or two geographical places that make you feel most human and alive? I love to, uh, to play sports. And, uh, so, you know, that's always a lot of fun and, uh, gives me a lot of energy and uh, camaraderie and, uh, the, you know, the, the, the challenge and so forth. There's a lot of great things about, uh, playing sports. So whether it's hockey or tennis or soccer or whatever, um, you know, they're all wonderful things to be able to do and a lot of fun. Um, so I guess that may be, uh, kind of a general answer to the question. Um, I've never really thought about it in the context of making me feel the most alive. Um, Again, uh, you know, certainly being with my family and so forth uh, is always wonderful. Um, the, the location is a little bit easier for me to answer. Um, I have, I'm very fond of mountains and, uh, and, and love places like Colorado. Um, you know, just love being out there in the raw uh, beauty of, of the mountains, uh, feeling kind of connected to and closer to, uh, as my, my, one of my mentors always say, you're, you're closer to God out there because you are at a higher elevation. Um, and, uh, in many ways it's true. Um, but, uh, there, there's something just unbelievable about that. And, uh, uh, the, the grandeur and the beauty and the awe that's associated with that, I think in, in many ways is sort of a natural cathedral, uh, for, for me. And, um, and I, I really do feel very much alive and very much connected to everything that there is, uh, when I'm out there in the mountains. So that's one of my favorite places to go. Wonderful. Dr. Newberg, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fantastic episode for us. Thanks very much for everything you offered. Thank you for having me on the program. Appreciate it. For more, go to managingleadershipanxiety.com. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.